As we come now before the Word of God, uh, please turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 1. Last week we were clear at the end, and now we're clear almost at the very beginning. Uh, So we'll be this morning in Exodus chapter 1. And before we read here, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from you, the Father. And Lord, we know that your word to us is really a gift. This is precious to us so that we would know you better, to know what's really true of you. Lord, would you work in our hearts and minds now. Open our eyes to see what is true. Help us to love you and to trust you more in these things. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Exodus in chapter 1. I want to read here uh, these first seven verses. So this is Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of God. Now, we are beginning here a new journey through the exodus of Egypt. And there's lots about this account that I'm sure you already know. This story of Exodus is very famous. I mean, movies are made about this with real people and with cartoons. Even culturally, many people are familiar with the Exodus story, and I can understand that. There's lots that we'll see in these coming chapters that's just stunning and kind of exciting and a little scary. And so I I get it. I get why culturally it's pretty well known. But our goal here in worship, we know, is not just to be entertained. And it's not even just to learn the details of these things. Our goal here is that God would mold us into an Exodus-shaped people. That because he is our God and we are his people, that this part of Exodus is really our heritage too. We are part of this, so we really need to get what's happening here. The difficulty as we go through Exodus, though, is that knowing where to begin with this story is tricky. 
So for example, we know that in the New Testament there are four uh, Gospels who are giving an account of the life of Jesus, and each of those four Gospels start in different places. Uh, Mark is the latest. He starts with Jesus as a full-grown adult, just at the beginning of his ministry, somewhere around 30 years old Jesus is there when Mark begins. Luke rewinds a little bit and backs the story all the way up to Jesus' birth and begins there. Matthew rewinds quite a bit further and starts to go through Jesus' lineage or heritage. He goes uh, back saying that Jesus is the son of David, even the son of Abraham, all the way that far back. But John goes further back still. John says, in the beginning was the word Jesus. That Jesus is before all creation, that Jesus is the uncreated one who was with God and who was God. Now, the fact that these four gospel writers start in different places doesn't mean they disagree with each other. They're all saying true things, but they each tell the true story of Jesus in a slightly different way to help us better understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So when Moses sits down to write the book of Exodus here, we don't get four accounts like we do with the gospels. We just have one and we have to wonder, uh, where does he choose to begin this story, and why does he choose to begin there? So it's natural for us, of course, to be like, well, of course, Moses starts in chapter 1. It's chapter 1, after all, chapter 1, verse 1. Where else would you start? But it's not quite so simple. We know that the Bible is one continuously unfolding story. And in these opening verses of the book of Exodus, Moses, the author, is giving us a few, I'll call them hints. Moses is giving us a few hints to show us that he intends to, to, to point us back to even earlier than the book of Exodus. He's intending for us to start the story earlier. So if we're going to understand Exodus, if we're going to listen well, we need to really get why he says that. So the first hint that Moses is giving us that he wants to start the story even earlier than this is the Vav. The Vav, V-A-V. Let me give you a warning here. What I'm about to say will be a little bit technical. Some of you are just going to eat this up. You're like, oh man, he's getting into Hebrew stuff. Some of you, it's not your bread and butter. That's all right. Hang with me. I'll come back around to you in a moment. Okay, here's what I mean by the Vav. There is, in the Hebrew writing of the book of Exodus, the very first letter in this book is a Vav. A vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it looks a little bit like a flagpole, just a line with a little tiny uh, flag up on top. A vav is extremely common in Hebrew because when a vav is attached to the front of any word, it functions like a connector. So an example of a vav we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
For in the beginning, God created the heavens, vav, the earth. Uh, the, the vav there is connecting heavens and earth. Vav is often translated as and. For some reason, it's not translated, at least here in my text and in many English translations at the beginning of Exodus, it's not translated here. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's within the verse, God created the heavens and the earth, but it's not the beginning. It would be odd to start the Bible with the words, and in the beginning. There's nothing before it to connect to it. It's like saying, and once upon a time... We don't start like that. We just begin once upon a time. And yet the book of Exodus opens with a vav. It opens with a tiny little and, signaling us that it's connected to what came before. That's the first hint, the vav. The second hint, pointing us that the story starts even earlier than this, is this discussion of the sons of Israel. So the last words of Genesis, the book before this, in the very last words, we hear that Joseph died. The Joseph's in a coffin in Egypt. And in these first verses of Exodus, we're reminded again, Joseph is dead here, but there's not just a connection of Genesis to Exodus edge to edge. There's a bit of an overlap, Genesis to Exodus. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to talk about sewing here for a second. And I don't know much about sewing, so you can correct me about this afterward. But here's the little bit that I know. Usually when people sew pieces of fabric together, they don't, they don't sew them edge to edge. Why? Because they'll tear apart there. If you feel even like the hem of your pants or other things, usually when things are sewn... They're overlapped and then stitched together that way to strengthen them. We get the same kind of situation with the words here, the opening words. In fact, this whole string of words at the beginning, these are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. In Hebrew, this is identical to a sentence earlier in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came to Egypt, Jacob and his sons, and so on and so on. In other words, everything that comes between Genesis 46 and Exodus chapter 1 is folded together in an overlap, in a sort of seam. So everything that we see in that section about the reconciliation of the family, because you know, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery in Egypt, and that's kind of not a great thing. So all that reconciliation is folded in. The fact that the whole family is now settled into Goshen in Egypt, where there, that, that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, blesses each of his sons with the covenant blessing of God. All of this is folded together into the first chapters of Exodus. So the author here, Moses, is not just saying, hey, you remember this, all of this is now in the past, let's just move on. Moses is telling us this from Genesis is now part of who we are now. This is stitched into your story now. All of this is supposed to be carried into Exodus with us. 
We see a similar sort of thing in TV spinoffs. I tried to think of a, of a TV spinoff that wouldn't be totally inappropriate and yet might be familiar to us. So Cheers, remember the old TV show Cheers, uh, where everybody knows your name kind of thing. It ran for, what, 10 years, 11 years? Uh, but Cheers, when it ended, uh, had a spinoff series uh, called Frasier. Uh, with just one of the characters. So in Frasier, no longer are they in a bar, but now they're in a, a radio station where Frasier works. No longer they, are they in Boston where the bar is, but he's now moved to his hometown of Seattle. And so in the pilot episode, in the very first episode of this spinoff, Frasier, we see the main character, Frasier Crane. And everything else is different. The characters are different. The setting is different. The place is different. The storyline is different. But we know Frasier. We know how he's kind of persnickety. We know what to expect about Frasier. We know even all of the backstory that Frasier carries with him. And now, as this new story unfolds, we carry all of that with us. That's happening here again in Exodus. So in the opening of Exodus, we get reference to, all the, uh, to Joseph, all the brothers and all their sons, that they've died, that there's now a new generation, and yet we recognize that all that's true of them comes with them. These sons of Israel are now carried into the spinoff of Exodus. All of their baggage comes with them. All the mess all the sin, all the strained relationships is still there. All that they've experienced as a family comes with them, that they are now a displaced people. They're now foreigners in Egypt. That's part of the spinoff. And also, most importantly perhaps, what comes with them is the promises of God that God for generations back had made covenant promises to Abraham and all of his children that he would bless them, that he would turn them into a blessing for the whole world. And so that story carries now into the book of Exodus in this new people. The story is still being told. That's why, by the way, when we hear Stephen in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, this just this big, long recounting. Stephen, right before he dies, tells the whole history of Israel, basically. And when he gets to the part of Exodus, he, just, he doesn't go, ooh, here's the exciting plagues part, which is usually how we think of Exodus. He starts that section as the time of promise drew near. You can hear it, that there was a backstory that built into it. There was a story before the story. So before the conflict with Pharaoh, before all the plagues, before the blood over the door, before all the parting of the Red Sea, all of that, we see in this pilot episode a recalling of history a remembering of God and his promises. Well, that's the second hint, this discussion of all the sons of Israel and a, a, just a whisper at their history. But there's a, a final hint here that Moses intends for us to think backward for a moment. 
And this hint is probably the easiest to recognize. You don't have to be a big fancy scholar or no Hebrew to get this one. This is where we'll focus the rest of our time uh, because I think it's the most important one for this section. The final hint that we hear here is the discussion of how the people multiplied. How the people multiplied. I mean, at the end of this section, the author is just like banging it into our head in, in, a, in a, a synonym salad. I mean, he just repeats himself in like half a dozen ways. Let me just read it. Verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and so the land was filled with them. Like, okay, Moses, we got it. You know, you don't have to say it so many ways. When an author in the scripture repeats things like this, they're not just being wordy like I might be sometimes. Sorry. It's more than that. They are trying to draw our attention. It's the Hebrew way of underlining something. So our version of this, at least my generation and the ones after me, when you text someone, and you put, all, you put in the words, when you add extra vowels in, like, that movie was long. Oh, 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 It's our way of underlining it, right? Or, or, you know, that party was fun. There's all these extra U's. And the, and the more vowels that you put in, the more you're trying to emphasize your point. Man, that, you know, that sermon was boring. Moses here in the beginning of Exodus is repeating these words over and over and over again to really underlining it. There's a heavy, dark black line under the fact that they multiplied. Now, why is he trying to underline that? What is he really saying there? When we're told here that the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied, does that sound familiar to you? If you read the Bible, it may sound like something you've heard before. It is not just telling us here that the Israelites had lots of babies, although that's part of it. The fact that they have lots of babies is going to matter very much for what happens next in the story, which we'll get to see uh, next week. But when we hear all these different ways of saying that they were fruitful and multiplied, this is pointing us all the way back even to page one of the Bible, back when everything was good. That in Genesis 1 we see the account of creation. In Genesis 1, we hear how God made everything, but especially we hear how God structured creation. So in days 1, 2, and 3 of creation, we see God creating spaces, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the land, the skies, all of that, he creates the space. And then in the next three days, days four, five, and six, he fills the spaces. 
That's where we see him putting into those spaces the sun, the moon, and the stars, the birds, the fish, the livestock, the crawling things, even mankind. And we hear these words, part of this Exodus 1 uh, synonym salad, repeated in that story. We hear how the waters teem with fish, how the skies were filled with birds, how, how the creatures multiplied on the land, and all of it was good. It's even part of God's call, God even says specifically, I want you to fill it. He says this to man specifically. You'll recognize these verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, where is it? Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Listen. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is part of God's command to mankind. This is part of our purpose as humans that we would be fruitful and multiply. We have a phrase, a name that we use to talk about this command. We call it the cultural mandate. That's not the scripture's use of the word. We use that term to talk about this. The cultural mandate. Now, what exactly is the cultural mandate? What exactly does this mean that God would say, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it? This is not all about reproduction, but it's also not, not about reproduction either. It's not all about reproduction, but it's not totally void of talking about reproduction. So when God says, be fruitful and multiply, some have misread that command and taken it to mean that you ought to procreate and, and, and have as many babies as you physically possibly can. You know, this is where we get the, the X number, 19, 20 kids and counting sort of idea. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with having lots of kids even, but that's not what this cultural mandate is about, at least not only that. On the flip side, there are others who maybe go in the opposite direction and cut kids out of the picture of this altogether. There are many, you hear even conversations about this broadly, that, you know, the world is already too crowded. I mean, we're pushing six billion population, and so some people go, well, I don't want to bring more kids into the world. It's already too full. With, especially with the modern uh, luxury of birth control, we have had more control over childbearing than ever in history. And so we find more and more people choosing not to have kids at all. And sometimes those people convince themselves that they're choosing not to have children for good and justified reasons, which, of which there are some good reasons, but sometimes those reasons are just really selfish at the core. We may not want kids because kids are messy and disruptive and expensive. 
the call to be fruitful and multiply is about much more than just having kids, but it's also not less than having kids. The Lord calls children a blessing. The Lord calls children a blessing. So if you have children, whether your kids are very young or much older, remember that your kids are a blessing. Having kids, raising kids is hard and exhausting. I'm usually tired and stressed from it. Um, We often fail at various parts of parenting and need forgiveness from God and from our kids even sometimes. But kids are God's gift to you. They are part of his goodness. We need to treat our kids this way. Maybe even to tell them often these things. You are God's blessing to me and to us. You are God's gift to me, to us. We hear it said in the scripture a few ways, but in the poems of Psalms, we hear this. uh, Psalm uh, 127, we hear these words. Verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Kids are a good thing. Now, as soon as I say that, I recognize that there are also many, many, many faithful, God-loving people who are unable to have kids for any number of reasons. Maybe because they're unmarried. Maybe because there's some medical issue that was preventative somehow. Maybe because they're just too old, perhaps, to have children. Maybe there's some reason that's unknown to us. And as part of that, that childlessness can be a source of pain. There can even be a sense of loss that comes with that, a sense of feeling fruitless because of that. But you need to know if that's your situation that the cultural mandate is still for you. Do not despair or do not feel lesser or second class because you don't have children. The Apostle Paul was not married and did not have kids. And he himself reminds us, at least of his situation and then of many others, that his calling as a single man is good and fulfilling and fruitful. Even though he did not have biological children, he had many, many children in the faith. And even more than just Apostle Paul, Jesus, never married, never had children, 
But of course, Jesus is not disobedient to the cultural mandate. He is not unable to fulfill it. Jesus is the most fruitful man who ever walked the earth. Whether we have kids or not, the cultural mandate is for us. This call to be fruitful and multiply. And it's about bigger things than just uh, having more babies. Uh, I received a little help from Nancy Piercy on this. She wrote this in the book Total Truth about the cultural mandate. She writes this, In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, to build crops, plant, or to plant crops, build bridges, design computers, to compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, to build civilizations, and nothing less. In other words, Creation is made by God as good as his kingdom of heaven on the earth. And his fruitful mandate to mankind is to plant upon that earth families and crops and music and medicine and sports and gardens and art. All of these things that we would enculturate the world, that we would rule as God's agents of blessing in the world, and that all of it would be good, so good. You have to imagine what would have happened if it went that way, but of course we know how the story unfolds. We have failed. Adam and Eve failed in this, and we continue to fail in this. We've entered into sin and create cultures our own way because we want to rule for ourselves. Instead of filling the world with God's blessing, we have filled the world with things like greed and isolation and fear. It's the reason why we all need Jesus to come and rescue us from sin. But no matter how persistent we are in our own sin, no matter how determined we are to go our own way and create our own cultures, the Lord is determined to continue this. He has not abandoned his intention to fill the earth with all that's good, that the earth would be fruitful and multiplied. He is so set upon this that even when the earth grew so wicked that he needed to wipe everything out with a flood, God rescued Noah and Noah's family in the ark. And finally, on the day when they stepped back onto land again, their first call from God, be fruitful 
multiply and fill the land with blessing. I'm not done with that, he says. And then again, when, you know, later in Genesis, when this famine comes to wipe out Egypt and even the whole land, we know that God rescued the people through Joseph, that uh, Joseph created the system in which the people could be fed. And when the famine was over, there's now this family of God in Egypt. And these first words now that we hear in the book of Exodus is that the people were fruitful and multiplied that they filled the land with blessing. God is not done with the cultural mandate. It is blossoming here. If only that were the end of the story. We know we're just right here at the beginning. We know how this is about to go, that hard things are coming here in Exodus. There will soon be slavery. There will soon be oppression. There will soon be plagues and blood. There will soon come a Pharaoh who is actually threatened by the fruitfulness of this blessed people. This Pharaoh will try to crush them then, but the Lord will save. All of that's coming. For now, though, it is important for us to see how this true story of Exodus begins. Hear this, if you've heard nothing else. We need to hear how the story of Exodus begins. It does not start with a bad Egypt that God brings the people out of. It starts, in a sense, with a good blessing that God is going to bring his people back to. It does not start with a bad Egypt to get out of. It starts with a good blessing to get back to. And that matters. It will help us, actually, to trust God with what comes through everything that's about to unfold here. We can trust that it's all working out according to his plan and that through it he is going to proclaim his glory and reclaim our good Would you pray with me? Lord, we know uh, that you are God, that you are good, and that you do good. Lord, teach us your ways. Help us to really listen to your cultural mandate, that we would be a people of your blessing, that we would really be fruitful and multiply perhaps through even our children, but also through our cultures, through our work, through all of our school and all of our lives even. Lord, we must have your help to do this. Would you guide us in it so that you would be praised? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.